Hello and welcome to the Veer Vulnerabilis Veer podcast. I'm Adam Glinsky. And I'm Albert Imperato. Where we help men communicate and build empathy. All right, Albert, we got another one coming up here. This is will be our 20th episode, so I'm really stoked that we've made it this far. Um, so yeah, what have you been up to? I see you're up in uh, the valley. Good old Hudson. We are. We're, we've been up, up at the house. Um, yeah, since all the craziness has hit, uh, we sort of not deliberately left New York City. We thought we were just coming up on a typical weekend, and then suddenly it was like, uh, you might want to think about not coming back to New York City. And, um, you know, since, you know, obviously the whole world's been gripped by this, it's not like what's happening here is not happening everywhere. That's what's so unique, really, about what's happening uh, with this pandemic is that, you know, you you call friends in Sweden and you talk to a friend in Australia and everybody is talking about the same thing. So um, anyway, it's it's kind of a bizarre and wonderful question. Like, do you like do your podcast and admit that there's a pandemic going on or you sort of like pretend like nothing's going on and let's talk about something else and give people a break. And the bottom line is we'll follow, we'll find sort of a happy medium. Uh, I think that's kind of the healthy approach. There's there's times where you can't help but talk about this thing that everybody's talking about. And then there's times where you just have to talk about something else. And that's kind of the nice feedback that I've been getting from people just saying that they found our uh, last podcast very diverting. Um, you know, we two or three guests ago, we started interviewing people who, like on the West Coast, we talked to Christian out in Seattle, and he was already in... in uh, uh, con, you know, quarantine. And, you know, now we're talking to Joshua Roman, the cellist, who's, this is the first interview where let's really fully, like we're all in a very different world and situation. So um, yeah, lot, a lot going on. And how about you? I mean, you're, day, you're not going to work right now. Yeah. So I'm, I'm totally off my wife. Um, you know, one of her jobs is, um, since she works for CVS is essential. So, um, she's going to work during the week, but for me, I've just kind of really embraced this time to spend time with my son. Um, we've been taking small walks outside, you know, when it's uh, decent out, but mainly it's a whole lot of screen time, you know, been watching uh, TV. I swear. I know every single nursery rhyme there is out there. But uh, yeah, I know <laughs> they haunt me sometimes. But yeah, you know, just taking this time, living slow, um, connecting online, a lot of FaceTime calls, you know, checking in with my family. So it's uh, it's a weird dynamic where it's, you know, when it affects the entire world, it's like we all have something in common. So, you know, there's something to talk about, even if it's not that great. But it really is kind of pulling my family together and really kind of getting everyone out there. So. Um, you know, double-edged sword. It's really true. I mean, think about all the world events, you know, every once in a while, like the Olympics, everybody's sort of watching the Olympics, mm -hmm. you know, and, but, you know, baseball, if you're in a country that doesn't care about baseball, then you're not caring about baseball when everybody's talking about the World Series and the two cities that are playing. I mean, we think that when we call something a world something, that the world's actually paying attention. The truth is most of the world's not. This is different. Yeah, this is different. It's it really is a world event. And, uh, you know, for good and for bad, I think we're going to I hope we'll get through it and learn something and be different people and, and hopefully better people, because otherwise, what a, a pandemic would be a terrible thing to waste. Right. Isn't that like the paraphrase? 
But, but it, I mean, honestly, we're probably and hopefully never going to see anything quite like this. It'd be great if one day we could be united like this with a worldwide event. That's something positive that's causing nobody any hardship and, and heartache and loss. So that's our little hope for the future. So why don't we go into the show uh, and, and see where Joshua can take us? Because he's a very interesting, young, very talented musician. He certainly is. And one thing that hasn't gone away during this time is music and, you know, being able to talk to people. But uh, let me introduce Joshua here. Uh, He is a cellist, accomplished composer and curator whose performances embrace musical styles from Bach to Radiohead. Before setting off on his unique path as a soloist, Roman was the Seattle Symphony's principal cellist. Joshua has earned the international reputation from a wide-ranging repertoire. Joshua is a celebrated performer, accomplished composer, and was named a TED Senior Fellow in 2015. Joshua, it's a pleasure having you on the show. Welcome. Thanks, Adam. Hi, Albert. Good to see you, too. Josh, it's great to see you, Joshua. Um, <laughs> yeah, I know Josh's and Joshua's, and you never know. I'm Albert. Nobody calls me Al because... No if, one does. I, if my name was Al, it'd be like, I, I'm a pro bowler. Like, who would you call uh. Al? The funny part is, there's like three people that call me Al, and one was my mom. And there's actually an artist that I work with, uh, Daniel Hope, the violinist, calls me Al. And I had uh, one friend call me Al, but pretty much people call me Albert. What a ridiculous diversion there. But anyway, I just <laughs> want to very quickly just say that, that Joshua uh, worked. Uh, at, um, I knew, I've known Joshua's work for a long time. We've done some promotional work with Joshua in the past and uh, our our paths kind of diverged for a bit um but always he was in sort of in the back of my mind because he's he's young and he's got uh, you know very interesting ideas and people here always attach you know words like creative and innovative and visionary and all this uh to joshua's name um so that kind of always sticks with you when people think of a person as that kind of special uh, creator, but I, I do want to very quickly just mention like my my little moment of vulnerability uh, in all this is that I'm always really nervous to tell people in the classical music world about my other life as a you know a blogger about denim and rugged style, uh, and that I'm doing a podcast about male vulnerability. At first, like it was really hard to ever admit it to what somebody in my my day job world. Uh, and and it was, you know, actually my business partner and friend, Glenn Petrie, sent me this note from Joshua to his fans that talked about vulnerability. And he said, oh, you should have Joshua on your show. And um, I was like, oh, that means I have to tell him what I'm doing. <laughs> uh, so anyway, the, the vulner- it was vulnerability that did bring us together. And, and I want to start by asking you, you actually on, on Instagram and probably other places, you play... Uh, the cello and sing Leonard Cohn's Hallelujah, and and which is a, a song that's just full of vulnerability, obviously. But you you in this in this email that you sent to your fans, you called it vulnerability as a practice, which is wow, what a what a statement, what a sentence. Tell us a little bit about this, about the piece, and about vulnerability as practice, and what that means. Right. Well, it's such a for me, it's been quite a journey. There was a moment years ago where I, I started to realize that maybe in 
hiding my vulnerabilities. I was hiding something from myself that was actually extremely powerful. And to, you know, sort of tie that into what it means to have that as a practice or um, how that ties into sharing hallelujah. For me, it is trying to never let something just sit unfound inside, something that I'm afraid to see myself or afraid to share. And as a, as a performer, I don't, I don't know if any of you relate to this, but as a performer, I certainly feel like there's a certain level that I want to get things before I put them out there. Like my job is to perform and to move people and I have to connect, but my job is also to be very skilled and very professional. In classical music, there's such a high technical level that I have this, you could say, pressure to be performing at a certain technical level. Got to play in tune, got to hit all the right notes, don't have memory slips, all these sorts of things that I don't really think about or stress about on a cognitive level, but there's this low hum of that all of the time. Like that's part of the job. So anytime I'm thinking about what I'm going to put out there, there is that base level at which I then say, okay, I've reached this point. Now it's good enough to share. And in sharing hallelujah, I was really going out there. I'm a cellist. Um, you know, I, I guess I sang in choir a little bit when I was a kid. And, and when I was in high school, I, I played in a band and, and did some of the like Christian worship music stuff, but not, you know, not tons of it. And I never really had any training as a singer. And I've developed you know, a little bit of a following as a cellist, and I definitely feel like I have a reputation as a cellist. So to put this out there, me singing, not having had any lessons on how to do it, not really knowing what I'm doing, and frankly, not having practiced it, <laughs> but just feeling it took a lot. It took a lot for me, but I felt like, what does it say if I talk about vulnerability but I don't practice it. Um, and as a performer, that was a real, it's a real challenge. Like, can I essentially put my process out there for other people to see? And I did it because I felt like, first of all, in that moment, that song had the things that I wanted to express. And would I feel the same in a week after I had practiced it and gotten a video that I felt was worthy? I don't know if I would have felt the same. I felt it extremely powerfully at that moment. That was the moment to share it. And what I also- was that What was that moment? What had happened that made you sit down, play the cello and sing hallelujah and record it and put it up on Instagram? Well, I started, I, you know, when, when, when concerts started getting canceled and I really started to realize that this pandemic was coming down on us, and that we had to do, we like, we have to take it super seriously. I just grabbed my cello and started sharing Bach online. And I didn't really think it out. I play Bach for myself for many reasons, personal, spiritual, musical, whatever. And I felt like that would be a good thing to share. So I just sort of instinctively grabbed my cello, started playing on Facebook Live and Instagram. And then a few days later, I was like, well, I can't just play Bach. Um, and... I was also absorbing all of this news. I think the day that I had done that was, it was either the day or the day after I'd gone into self-isolation so that I, I wasn't feeling great. I was feeling my sore throat. I flushed, you know, I'm, I'm traveling all the time. So I'm pretty used to 
feeling what it's like to come down with something. And I knew that I was fighting something and I had no sniffles. So I was like, I don't know if this is it. Like, this is pretty weak symptom stuff going on. But if it is that, then I definitely don't want to be passing it on to anyone else. So just out of an abundance of caution, I locked myself down immediately. But all of that, all of this sort of swirling tension, and I just felt like I had to sing. I felt like I had to sing about something like the cello is usually my voice, but somehow I had to, to have my voice be a part of it. And in sharing that and expressing that, I found connection, but I also, on another level, as a performer, performing for other people, and, and in, in essence, I think we're all performers all the time. Like, can we ever truly be ourselves without any reservation or any fear? Maybe there are moments, and I hope we grow those, but I wanted to, to be a good example of that, of like, I'm not, you know, I, this is something I feel so strongly that I think if I hold back and try to make it perfect, then I'm going to be doing a disservice to the very reason that I need to share it in the first place. And hopefully musicians and non-musicians alike are not only moved by the, the song itself, but maybe also inspired to think about why they would be so concerned with perfection over and presentation, especially on a platform like Instagram. But is it, are you really, do you need, really need to curate that perfect moment or can you be honest and share who you are? And that for me was that moment. Yeah, that's one of the amazing um, like dualities in classical music that I'm always struck by, that we want perfection. You want the performance to be at the very highest technical level. But the minute that it sounds too packaged and too perfect, people are, are telling you that you're not spontaneous and there's no like of the moment, uh, passion, et cetera. And I think that's really hard to negotiate that uh, in life in general. I mean, that, that, that poise, but it is also a, an exciting thing to try to capture. And I think it's great that you did it. Was your reaction to the video, to video more than you normally get? I mean, I saw you had like four, you know, 4,700 views of that video from a week ago. And I'm just wondering, is that pretty much normal? Did you get more comments, more feedback? You know, there it's, it's, it was different feedback and more, yeah, I mean, it was a little bit more than average, I would say. Uh, so much of it has to do with the time of day, things are post, et cetera. But I definitely think that there was a strong connection and I've gotten messages from people. And actually one thing that's happened since then is that people keep on popping up on my live streams asking me to do it again. <laughs> so... <laughs> So I know that I know that it has meaning for people in that way, and it and it is not the first time that I have done it. The difference is that I've never done it and let it be recorded before. I've tried it out for people where I felt like I could put it in that moment and sort of that curated moment couldn't be uh, played over and over again, so I couldn't be analyzed. And that was the thing that I had to overcome for, for this as a performer was like, people will be able to rewind. They're not going to be in the room with me. But when is that going to happen again? So what do I care about? Do I care about my image or do I care about the message of what I have to offer? Adam? Yeah, I um. I totally resonate with a lot of that as well. And uh, I'm not a 
cellist. Uh, I make beats for my musicianship. Um, and whenever I put out my first album, I was scared to death to, to hit upload. And the whole thing, like you said, is like, this is going to be analyzed and, you know, it's, it's going to be out there for everyone to, to listen to. And what if I make a mistake or like, what if this sounds bad or what if this isn't received well? Like, how is that going to make me feel and look? And I remember on this one song, I was like, ah, I can't get this one panning for this instrument right when I was mixing it. And I was like, I'm just going to do this and live with it. And I sent it in and I was like, okay, like I did it. Like it's done. I wish I did it differently now. Cause you know, a year later, you know, I feel like I've grown as a musician and, and professional mixer, but it's just the, the fact that you, I was telling someone that like, Hey, you know, I have all this music that it's just stockpiled up in my library. And she was like, hey, yeah, just put it out there. Like, what are you waiting for? And I was like, it, and I literally said like, eh, it's, it's not perfect. It's not the way I want it to be. And you know, to, to exactly what you said um, through vulnerability, it's like, you have to be vulnerable to release any type of music or perform um, even for like a recorded session, you just have to be okay with it and be in that moment. Um, whenever you like started doing that or decided to say that, like, what were those big things for you that, you know, you just kind of had to overcome? Was it anxiety, fear, you know, rejection? What were the kind of emotions that came up for you? For me, I would say, yeah, fear of rejection is probably the biggest one. I I really started thinking about this a lot when I started composing. And and it started immediately to affect my cello playing and then my conversations as well, but it was this idea that that I felt like I knew what I was doing with the cello. I had a construct. I have technique. I have understanding of phrasing. I have opinions, uh, and I believe well-educated opinions, about different styles. I have so much training, and I love music, too. I have a lot of passion for it. And I think in building that construct, there, there was maybe not as much of me as there could have been. And because I spent so much time and energy on the construct itself, I wasn't really seeing that. And when I was composing, I didn't have the same construct to lean on. I was essentially, I, I didn't really get into composing out of anything except um, misunderstanding. Um, and very, very quick story about that is just that I was working with this actor, Anna DeVere Smith, on a play that she wanted to have music be like an equal partner, not just a background thing. And so we spent a lot of time together developing this play. She's amazing. She goes there with vulnerability. And, I, you know, we were using Bach and stuff. And then one day she was like, well, we were both like, this really isn't working. Bach is great. These Many of them are the right character for what I'm trying to do, but I don't want to be chopping Bach up to fit the time that I want it to last. I don't need, want to extend things that sound right. It's going to be weird. And so we started exploring other stuff, and it was really frustrating trying to find stuff that would work. And one day, about a month later, we're sitting there, 
in a rehearsal and I was like, well, this spot, what we're really going for is, I think I want to find something that sounds like this. And I just busted out with something. And she was like, yeah, that, that one, why don't you play that one? And I was like, well, that, that isn't one. <laughs> I was just showing you what it would sound like. And she was like, well, I don't understand. Why don't you do it again? And I, I was, I couldn't answer that. And so I did it again. And next thing I knew, I was essentially improvising all of the music for this thing. It was like maybe 40 minutes of music and a lot of it alone on stage with this incredible actor who has a huge following. And it was a very big deal for me to go out and be that vulnerable. And then the further misunderstanding was that the organization that had us doing that the next year, they wanted... They wanted us to, they wanted me to play a solo concert and they were going to commission a piece, but they asked way too late. So none of the composers I suggested could do it. There were like two months and they said, well, well, why don't you write a piece? And again, there was this misunderstanding because I was like, well, I'm not a composer. And they said, but didn't you compose the music for Anna's thing? I said, no, 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 no. I mean, like I wrote themes down, but mostly I improvised. And they were like, we don't understand the difference. So once again, I could not explain why I wasn't doing the thing that I actually was doing. So I just gave in and that's how I came to composing. So I've always had this thing with composing that I don't have the training that I do on the cello, but I have the exposure that I do on the cello. My music, I was actually, tomorrow I was supposed to play a piece of mine at the Kennedy Center. Like my music has, it goes as far, I, I've played it on the BBC, like, with the Jack string quartet, I have a concerto, all this stuff. And so the pressure that I would feel for, as a performer on the cello was being translated to something where I did not have the same confidence. And there was nothing that I could do about that except to just lean in. And what was really weird is that I started to find when I was writing music that if I stopped thinking about what it was supposed to be and just felt what it was, I would go in these directions that were super scary for me, but always ended up being the best parts of the piece and the things that people responded to the most that felt super awkward to write, but just really kind of expressed something. Rather than just following rules, I was actually communicating. And I started to think about that in terms of cello playing and then, again, in terms of relating to other people that the thing... The thing that we all have in common more than anything else, I think, is vulnerability. And if you're trying to reach people, if you're trying to shoot for something universal, you're going to be playing on themes that are just the shell of what it's all about. Like, sure, you can use the golden ratio and all this sort of stuff to figure things out. But if you're not opening up and giving what's inside that kind of challenges you or scares you, then people don't relate. The most powerful things, the most universal things are the most personal ones. And so I've tried to make a practice of looking for that in myself as a way of relating to, frankly, to myself and therefore being able to connect with other people better. Can, that, that's amazing. I mean, I think that applies to so many aspects of our life. When do we tell somebody we care about them? When do we actually confess what our fears are and our anxieties are? I mean, I, it's a constant tightrope of wanting to express and wanting to reveal at the same time being so afraid that what we reveal will be rejected or judged or laughed at. 
I mean, I mean, that's a really, that's a really powerful, uh, a powerful story. Um, take us back a little bit. Now you grew up in Oklahoma, was it? Okay. So how, how, um, just give us a basic little snapshot. You're, you're, were you like in rural, like on a farm somewhere, just give us a little snapshot and then introduce how you discovered this instrument that became such a big part of your life. Definitely. So I grew up as essentially a preacher's kid. My father is a reverend in the United Methodist Church, but he was never actually a preacher. I come from a musical family, so he would be the choir director or music minister or worship arts guy. And my mother is also a musician who now is also a church choir director. So there was some classical training and definitely for, for them and definitely some love of classical music. But I think just as much it was about, especially in the 80s and the 90s, the kind of Christian worship scene that had gone beyond the traditional hymns. Those were a big part of it, obviously, for the choir, but was including all of these bands and stuff. And so there is this was the world of music that I was born into, not super rural Oklahoma, like suburbs of Oklahoma City um, and you know, in case you couldn't guess from the jobs <laughs> I just described, there was no money. So, <laughs> you know, so we didn't, we didn't really have anything, but, um, my parents were, they are. Did you have they're, siblings? You have siblings? I, yeah. I'm the oldest of four kids. And then for a long time, we, we also took in foster kids because my parents just have big hearts. So there was a big family, friends over all the time, lots of music and, I was handed, well, not handed a cello. My mom says that my dad coerced me into playing the cello because that was kind of his instrument in high school and college, and hers was the violin, and I technically had a choice, but my dad was like bad-mouthing the violin and saying the cello's way better. So, I mean, three-year-old boy, I took the cello like my dad, and I loved it. I just didn't, like, they didn't intend for me to become a musician. But I wanted to be a musician pretty much right away. Definitely by the time I was six, I was like, I want to be the next Yo-Yo Ma. That's all I ever wanted to do. And I'm this kid from Oklahoma who's probably supposed to be in the rodeo, like some of my friends ended up being, or be another church minister. And instead, like, I've got this weird idea that I'm going to go be in this world of classical music. And so all of my musical interactions, whether they had Bach or Mozart or new music um, or something else, happened around people who didn't really know what it was like, weren't a part of that infrastructure in that world. So it gave me a real sense of, I think, an, like, uh, how do you say, I was not in the infrastructure that I would have been in, like, in New York City. I wasn't going to, you know... Saturday school at Juilliard with all the other cellists. I didn't know cellists. I played with did, guitarists. Did, uh, your peers, the, the 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 kids, your friends, your your kids you went to school with, were they were they like excited and supported that they had a talented friend in the class, or did you feel self conscious about it? Did you even get made fun of at all that you were playing the oh. instrument? And no, what was it no. like? Not at all. I mean, I took it super seriously and I practiced all the time and like I jammed with my friends. I mean, I, my first chamber music experiences, I think, were actually um, me playing in a church band with the cello, like improvising with my parents um, and then with my friends. Like it'd be a cello and a djembe and a guitar. And I actually learned 
Uh, I started taking jazz bass, upright bass, and I, I played guitar. I played guitar in bands and like uh, rock bass and all sorts of stuff. So I was making music and I really, I felt, I felt like I fit in. And I felt like that's what a cellist was supposed to be, just somebody who fits in with everybody else but carries a cello around and disappears for three or seven or eight hours a day. <laughs> well, uh, going into that practice, um, you know, one thing that led me to, you know, my kind of like personal musicianship was just like really surrendering myself to it and just saying, okay, this is what I want to be. Like, how do I figure this out? So was there a type of like, reckoning you had with your um like instruments or some some kind of like devotion or dedication or was it just I mean it sounds like you just had music all around you so um for me that wasn't the case it was I had to make time for my music down in my parents basement and rock out by myself all the time um but for you like was there any type of like surrendering to it or just like was it more passion based it was more passion based it's funny looking back and clearing things up with my parents was a was a big thing for me about a decade, a little over a decade ago. I was so into it, and I thought everyone thought it was awesome that I was into it, which apparently was not the case. My parents tried to discourage me from taking it as seriously as I did. their Their rule was that we were we had to play a musical instrument so that we would have an appreciation for culture, self-confidence, the ability to learn things on our own. You know, like you get a task from a teacher once a week and then you're on your own. You got to show up better at it the next week. And finally, and probably most wisely, to get a college scholarship at a school that had some sort of fledgling music program and would offer that scholarship for you to study engineering or something practical. And some of my siblings did that. In fact, I think all of them did that at one point or another. But I was like, oh, this cello thing's awesome. I'm going to make it my life. So they would they would say things I remember so many times they would see things like, well, if that's if you really want to take it seriously, you know you have to practice a lot. And to my mind, they were encouraging me to go off to my room and spend another three hours with the cello. And later I discovered that actually they were trying to scare me off. Um, so I, you know, I always felt encouraged. <laughs> Wrongly. <laughs> Wrongly, but I always so felt encouraged. Where did you wind up going to school? Uh, Cleveland Institute of Music. So you went to a serious school. Oh, I did. Yeah. And, and, and that was another one. Like I went to, I started going to summer festivals when I was 13 or something. And then I think I was 15 when I went to Encore School for Strings and I met Richard Aaron, who was a great teacher. And he was like, you should come to Cleveland and study here. And so I went home and I was like, I'm moving to Cleveland. <laughs> and they were like, what? <laughs> so I went to college at 16, like, and that's just how it was. I told my parents what was going to happen and I did it. And, and then later found out that they didn't like that. <laughs> and did they fully come around and, and think like, oh, we always thought you'd succeed and you're amazing and we're so proud of you? Or they, do they still wish you had become an engineer? They've come around now, but it was a long road. I actually, the moment I discovered that they hadn't been supportive, actually, or hadn't meant, I should say, had not meant to be supportive, because I always felt supported. I was driving with my mom and I had just dropped out of the doctoral program two weeks before it started because I realized it would have been a terrible mistake and taken me away from what I really wanted to do. I was in the car with my mom. I was in the back seat. I think my sister and my brother was in the car and she looks 
like talking about stuff and I, was, and I don't think I never would tell them things until after they happened. Um, so I told her that I had gotten into a doctoral program and, oh, wait, sorry, this was before I had dropped out. That's right. I told her that I had gotten into the doctoral program and I was going to get a doctorate. And she looked at me. I won't never forget the, the look of her eyes in the rear view mirror, just this wide eyed shock. And she pulled over and she was like, wait, you mean you're going to get a real job and have a house and a family? And I was just sitting there like, wait, what do you mean? And she, she's like tearing up and almost crying. And she was just like, oh, I'm so happy. Oh, you, oh, it's such a, I can't wait to tell your father. And I was just like, I don't understand what's going on. So that was when it all sort of started to come out that they had not meant for me to pursue that and that it had all been me all along. And once we got past that, and then I dropped out of the doctoral program, and then she took that pretty hard. And it, it was not until, I think, until the night that I won the Seattle Symphony audition and called them. And again, it was another thing I didn't tell them I was taking an audition. I didn't really tell them what was going on. But I called them after the, I won the audition. And I, I, my dad picked up, and I was like, you know, I'm here in Seattle, da da da, da. And he's like, oh, well, what's that? Is it a good job and everything? And I was like, they know, they know some stuff. They don't, they're not really in the orchestra world. And so I was like, dad, it's a six figure salary <laughs> starts in six figures. He's like, what? All of a sudden I was on speakerphone and they've been truly supportive ever since. <laughs> oh my goodness. How old were you when you got the job at the, at the symphony? 22. 22. Yeah. My goodness. That's amazing. Um, what, at, so at that point, you did you think that you were going to be a, uh, an orchestra, uh, orchestra musician? Like, how did then you suddenly take the road of being a soloist? Right. Well, that's another, that's actually another point kind of circling back a little bit to the main topic of vulnerability. It's interesting, people who haven't known me my entire life or didn't know me super well look at what I did that, you know, I kind of got my start as principal cellist of the Seattle Symphony, a job that so many cellists would get and say, I'm set and that's it. I stayed there for two years and then I was gone. And people are like, what made you change your mind? I didn't change my mind. I always wanted to be a soloist. I didn't believe that competitions, I, be, I began to understand that competitions were not working out for people the way that we had been taught they would. I watched so many people win competitions, have two years of concerts and disappear. And I didn't want to be like that. So I found another way. I got this principal position. I did my best at it. I thought I would stay longer, but things ended up kind of working out in the solo realm earlier. But it was still, even though I felt I never regretted for even a second when I chose to leave, to, to leave, it was, it was kind of, it was tough. I had to go from this six figure salary and steady stuff to like, I think the year after that, it was just enough concerts that I would not have been able to do both. And, but not enough concerts to keep me from just bleeding money all year long and not having a backup net at all. And really putting myself out there. Do I believe in this? And I did. And I kind of, I think I lucked out in a lot of hard work, but you know, I, 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 I often think about what if I hadn't taken that chance? You'd be playing cello in an orchestra. 
Yeah, which was never my thing. Yeah. I think I would be unhappy. And so anytime I feel the struggle, I just remember that, you know, even if the bank account isn't full, I am doing what I love. I think it's good. Well, I mean, that's the, the dream, right? To actually do the thing that you love. I mean, I, I kind of wrestle with that all the time, especially right now. The economy's a mess because of this disaster that's happening. And I'm just like, wow, if there's ever, you know, the first thing that's getting pummeled is the arts. The, the music world is kind of falling apart. And I'm like the promoter in this so this tiny little genre of music and i'm like we are really going to take a hit and every every you know i'm just for that moment thinking this is that moment that you know you have that little voice in the back of your head thinking this is why you become a doctor because right now you're like you're gonna be in demand big time and the bottom line is you know if you're not wired that way and if that's what not you're not meant to be it's great that that might be secure but i mean secure what does that even mean i kind of find myself wrestling right now with trying to redefine what security actually means. You know, what is security? Security is being able to be yourself, to feel loved and to, to love the people that you care about. I mean, my heart goes out to parents in this environment who are facing maybe losing a job when they have kids to take care of. I mean, that adds a, a level of complication to life. I mean, you know, we, you can always on your own find a way somehow. You know, when you have a family to take care of, it, it changes the calculus quite a bit. I'm wondering how right now within your life, you're in what, your mid thirties ish, right? Uh, I mean, what, what, when you're looking ahead, obviously, you know, still, it's not like it's an easy thing to be a, an internationally renowned cello soloist making a huge income. Um, when you look ahead, what, how do you sort of lay out that map and say, here are some of the things that I'm, I'm uh, looking towards, and, and what is the balance between your professional aspirations and artistic aspirations and your personal ones? I mean, do you, is it, it, it's, it's, it's challenging to, to balance those all out. I'm curious how that's working for you right now. Yeah, that's, those, are, those are such good questions. I think in this particular moment, and you know, there are plenty of events in my life where I've, I've felt this in, in different parts, and now I feel it in all of those parts that you just talked about, um, personal, artistic, professional. But I keep coming back to this idea that right now, what, what is happening to me, and, and I wonder if you feel the same, what is happening to me is not that some new, big, evil thing is is in in the world. I mean, yes, this pandemic, this this virus, the economic disaster are unlike anything I've ever dreamt of. But the themes that it has in it about, okay, well, what do I value in life? What does it mean to connect with other people? Am I doing the thing with my life that I want to do? Like, am I showing love? Am I I'm going to put my effort into something right now. Is it worth it? Is it really that? Like, who are the people that I want to call if I don't know what's going to happen in the next couple of weeks? Those are all the questions I'm supposed to be asking myself all the time anyway. Like, none of that is new unless I've been ignoring it. Now it's extremely urgent and pressing and, and 
like it's on a lot of people's minds at the same time. And for some people, maybe for the first time, but I think in terms of like what it means to me, it means that all of my vulnerabilities are being brought to the surface. And now it's time to like ask the question, okay, when I'm faced with this, is this a moment for me to learn to embrace those questions the lead me to those vulnerable places and find a way of building a structure in my life that carries beyond a virus, beyond a pandemic, or if I get it and die in the next couple of weeks, makes those weeks, makes those weeks like really count for something. You know, it's all of the cheesy things that you hear people say about making every moment count. Like it's now it just feels like they were right all along. <laughs> I don't know. Does that, is that, are you feeling any of that at all? I am. I think this is like the world's kind of like biggest reality check that we've had in a long time because it doesn't single anyone out. Everyone's being affected by this. And I think one question that is really kind of being answered or it's really being asked right now is, am I coming a place, coming from a place of courage or am I coming from a place of fear? And I think from how we interact and how we view ourselves and, you know, how we really, you know, socialize, you know, as best we can um, is coming from that. Just like you said, like those questions are really bubbling up to the top and we have to, to make a decision. So like, it is just a pleasure to hear that coming from other people. It's like, Hey, we need to really rise to this occasion and show the yourself, like the mirror, what you got and then show the rest of the world too. I had a moment on Friday last week that was was shattering to me of I've been, you know, in business on my own, running my own company for 20 years. And you never had to have a really difficult conversation with the whole staff about our future. And the night before I could barely sleep because I knew I was going to have to warn people that we might not be able to pay them full salary. And for 20 years, I was like working my ass off. If I had to work 20 hour a day, all I wanted to do was make people feel that they could go to the office, work hard and get a paycheck, be treated nicely, have, you know, be treated with respect and that they would get a paycheck. And that was like the guiding principle of my life for 20 years. And it was such a source um, of pride for me. Um, to do that for 20 years. We just celebrated in January, 20 years, our 20th anniversary. And here we are on this Zoom call because we can't go to our office and it's like the Brady Bunch. You see everybody's face. There's like 12 of us and we're all little squares. And there was like a little bit, I will admit, there was some fear in the eyes of the people in the screen. And that was not something I'd ever seen before. And I don't think that they were fearful that I was going to be telling them some terrible bad news, but they were all getting used to the new reality. We're not at our office. We're not at our office. Clients are calling and saying, I don't have an income. Um, like you could feel this fear. And I, I really was sad that morning. I'm very rarely sad. I'm usually a very optimistic, very energetic, upbeat human being. But that morning, I was like heavy duty. I was sad. And I just, just during the talk, uh, I realized I, I needed to do something. And I told uh, the, the story 
that we had had right as all this shit hit the fan uh, here at the house. We had a, a man uh, come to do the routine, like make sure that we are, you know, that we, what is it, pest control? Like we make sure the mice don't get into the house and they spray the foundation to make sure we don't have termites and blah, blah, blah. And I was a little bit, you know, getting ready for this heavy meeting. And, you know, Brian uh, warned me that there was a, a worker in the house pet doing pesticides. And I came out of the bath and I was so distracted and so worried about this call that I forgot we had a guest in the house. So I walk out buck naked and this guy carrying the, the, the insecticide on his back, you know, and the spray gun. And he's looking at me and he's like, I'm like, oh, uh, wow, hello, sir. And he's looking at me and I'm like, wow, this is a very uncomfortable moment. And he started just laughing. I said, dude, the world got really weird. Now you have like, this is just part of the weirdness. You know, there's this crazy <laughs> worldwide pandemic and you just saw a naked dude uh, who like is like some stranger and it's freaking weird as hell. And he started, he left and I left. And I just realized on the call uh, with my staff, I had better lighten the mood. And I realized, you know, at first I thought, wow, how disrespectful. People are like looking really upset and you're just like making a silly story joke. And I was so glad that I did because I'm not sure what it really did and whether it had any lasting impact on <laughs> the morale of the company. But about two hours later, one of my employees wrote a note and just said, you know, I was scared out of my wits and you made me laugh. You made me laugh and it just filled me with such joy. And I, that's when I sort of committed to, guess what? I am not going to be lying around in a puddle of worry, anxiety, and self-pity. And I'm feeling pretty shitty. And, and I have no idea what's going to happen to our company in, in the next couple of weeks. I couldn't even tell you. But I am not going to just lie down and feel like a victim. I'm gonna, if I'm gonna have to laugh at it, if I'm gonna have to get a job pumping gas, if I'm gonna have to beg uh, you know, one of you guys to give me a job, whatever, I'll confront it when I confront it. But what I'm not gonna do is, is give up. And I'm gonna try to make the, the priority the same goal that I had the whole time, put people first. Just put the people first. Think about trying to bring comfort to others and I'll figure out a way to get through this. So uh, I just had to share that with you because that was really heavy, heavy on me realizing that, uh, you know, my main driving goal for 20 years has now really been confronted. And I'm not sure I'm going to be able to stay on the path that I was on. I pray. I hope. I hope we can keep this company going. I hope we'll be fine on the other end. I hope all these orchestras are playing again. I hope, Josh, you're getting your commissions and getting your invites to orchestras. And I pray in a month, you know, the three of us will be laughing and saying, could you believe how worried we were? Guess what? It all came back really fast and uh, whatever. But, and if it's not, we'll do something else. We'll do something else. Well, yeah, I think that that's a beautiful story. And, and the thing that, that kind of, um, the thing that I, that I hear that I, I feel like I can take and, and think about more and, and try to practice is like, trying to get to the essence of it. You know, you're, you're talking about what you can do for the people in your company, and that's what mattered to you. And I think for all of us and, and for classical music, this is something that we've been grappling with for decades now is what's at the essence of it. You know, we've got this structure that's built around something 
And sometimes I think we focus so much on the structure that we lose the essence of it. And, you know, there are all sorts of data points and studies about why classical music doesn't have, always have attendance that we want or why audiences are getting older. And my experience as someone who has spent much of my life playing for non-classical audiences is that people just want to, they want the music and they want your love of the music. And that's what I have to share. And I think for each of us, whether it's in classical music or whether it's in building a company or doing beats, uh, whatever it is, it's asking that why over and over again. Why do I care about this? Okay, well, there's another level underneath that. Well, why do I care about that? Getting as deep as we can to the essence of why we care about something. And that's what we're scared of losing, really. Like, I'm not afraid. I'm, you know, I, it's hard to say. My favorite thing to do is play concertos with orchestras. I love playing the Dvorak cello concerto. I love playing concertos my friends have written for me, like Mason Bates and Aaron J. Kernis, and starting projects to do that, being up on stage with an orchestra and having that amazing energy of all these people who care about music, who've put so much into it. And I get to be the one playing the melody, kind of like the protagonist of the story. It's unbelievable. But what it's really about is expressing things that I don't know how to say with words and connecting with people. And when this all came crashing down and these concerts at the Kennedy Center and I was going to premiere a new piece that I just wrote, a concerto for Vadim Glutzman, the amazing violinist and myself with this orchestra in April, and that got canceled. All these things started getting canceled. I'm like, okay, well, that, that really sucks. There goes the structure. Okay, but what is it? And that's without even knowing yet the answer to that, that's when I grabbed my cello and I just started playing Bach. And... That's the thing I think I hear you talking about is it's like at the very bottom, when the structures fail you, what is it that drives you? And I think that there's always a way to find that and build again. And maybe if we're smart about it to build even better, but we don't get there if we don't open ourselves up to that vulnerability that can be really scary. It's like, why do I care? Why do I care? Yeah. Well, they can't take our instruments away. They can't take our passion for the music away. Like no virus can take that away from us. The only thing that can take that away is ourselves and our mindset. So as long as we hold true to ourselves, we'll always be able to give that no matter what our profession is. So I just absolutely love that message, man. Thank you for that, Joshua. Yeah, I just... That's a, a just an incredible summary. I wrote. I was writing notes as you talked. Because I want to, I want to be able to to draw upon that again. Um, I guess you know my number one essence question at the moment is, will we as a society really and truly learn the lesson we're, that we need to learn from this happening? I feel individually that we always make the right decisions, but somehow on the societal level, we're so fucked up. It's so weird. Like, like, how do we get so like every individual I meet, like so many of them, everybody's doing the right thing. They're caring. They want to do the right thing. They want to be positive. They want to be loving. And then you raise it to the next level, like the community level even works. But then suddenly it gets to some level where the greed gets in there and the, and the bullshit gets in there and the manipulation and the control and the power hungriness and you name it. And before you know it, all this great intention on the smaller 
micro microcosmal level is just like you know squandered and i guess that's what i'm scared of that we're going to go through this and about three weeks later we're going to have to listen to a lot of bullshit and watch a lot of greedy people fuck everything up again but i'm not going to go there yet i'm going to hope for transformation <laughs> i i, I want to hope for transformation please help me hold on to that joshua and adam i want us to believe this will be transformative i think that you know it's it's up to every single one of us to do that. I mean, that that happens. That's kind of like, that's one of those, there will be shitty things that keep happening. People are going to be greedy. And I think transformation, transformation is hard. Transformation for ourselves is hard enough, let alone convincing other people that they need to do it. And I think the only way that I have ever, I hope, been able to have an impact is by opening up my own vulnerabilities and putting myself out there and saying, yeah, I mean, I could just like show off, but here I am doing something scary. And you know what? I feel like it's better. And maybe you should try that too. <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's like, it's scary to even think of like telling people to do that, but I think we have to, because I think that you're, you're right at a certain point, you know, and just to, to call it what it is when people go to the ballot box when people are putting their money into things, the values that they hold as an individual don't seem to apply. And it's really frustrating. I, I truly believe that if, if your values are caring for others, and then it has to show in everything that you do. And if your values aren't that, I feel like you've missed on something, you've missed out on something truly essential, which is that none of us exist without everybody else. It just doesn't happen. We don't come into the world. We come from the world. This is, this is it. And we're all connected. It's all a big puzzle that none of us understand, whether you're religious or spiritual or not, like, or just a scientist. I mean, go the route, even of a scientist, we're all just made up of the same basic stuff. And we keep finding smaller and smaller particles that show that like, we're no different from everything else. So to get this idea that I matter more, and to act on that in any way defeats the purpose, I think, of existence in the first place. And it's that totally. How do you like? I don't know. This is this is a moment I think that people hopefully can think about that. A lot of people that maybe out of ignorance didn't think about how that relates to society or to politics are now finding themselves in this vulnerable position. I think rather than shaming people, just sort of helping with the recognizance that maybe some of those values that they have just haven't been applied on a big enough scale or from the right perspective. Right on. Joshua, that's great, man. And I got two things for that. One is interdependence. And you were talking about how we all work together and I think we really need to rely on that and, you know, start right there is saying, Hey, like we all need each other. We all need each other. And then like Albert was saying, it starts at a personal and then community and it keeps growing and growing. But as more and more people get together, I mean, the less connected we are. So we really need to work on those interpersonal relationships and interdependent relationships to really make it all work. And the second thing is, I got a quote Rumi right here. Uh, it's one of my favorite quotes. And it's, yesterday I was clever, so I wanted to change the world. 
today I am wise, so I am changing myself. I think that's really what we need to kind of look at in the mirror and say, hey, how am I going to change myself so that we can be interdependent and really just make the new world work? I love that. I love that. No matter how much we think we're already doing it, there's still more to uncover. There's another layer of an onion to peel. No matter how wise we think we are, we have to do that. That's awesome. Absolutely. Rumi got it. Well, after a very turbulent couple of weeks, I will say that talking to you guys just brought me complete and total pleasure, a lot of new hope and refreshment. And uh, Josh, uh, Joshua, I am so psyched that we've reconnected. You know, you're always one of those artists that everybody's like, he's so special, he's so special. And I like, you know, you and I, we kind of breeze by each other. We didn't really have that much time to talk. And I think this is so great that we talk tonight. And I suspect that this is going to reconnect us and that we're going to continue to talk. We hope that you'll come back down the road and, and talk to us again, by, by all means, if you find out, you know, something that the whole world needs to know, we can get it out to our very, very loyal group of listeners and they will spread the word. Uh, I want them to go to your Instagram feed and follow you. I want them to look for that, that Leonard Cohn track, but also listen to you play Bach. Um, I'm, I'm, I think we're, I think we're good for this episode. I'm going to ask Adam if he's got anything else he'd like to say, or he could, he could wrap it up for us. Yeah, I think that's a great point to end on. So thank you. It was a pleasure meeting you, Joshua. And uh, I really hope to, to reconnect and, uh, you know, see you again, you know, after all this and kind of get the compare and contrast episode. Yeah, I'm super grateful to be on here and also just seeing what you do and what you share and uh, how you're connecting with people. Thank you for doing that. I really appreciate you being in the world. Hey, you're very welcome, man. Well, this has been another episode of the Veer Vulnerabilis Veer podcast. I'm Adam Glinsky. I'm Albert Imperato. And I'm Joshua Roman. Thank you for listening.